So uh, three quick announcements uh, to get us started. First, Colossae 101 is this afternoon. Here's the deal. I have ordered pizza, but I can order more. So if you want to come, just let me know. We'd love to have you come and be a part of uh, this kind of one-hour informational session uh, about our church, vision, values, really talking about our philosophy of ministry, why we do what we do. So I wanted to invite you to that. And then I have uh, two announcements. Gary and Mary, would you guys stand up for me right there? Guys, we have launched a new community group, Gary and Mary Schwartz. We love them. Now, here's the deal. That means the Sherwood, com- Sherwood City doesn't have just one community group now. We've got two, and it's on two different nights. So they're on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Uh, please come. We'd love to have you be a part of what we're doing, but just want you to be aware. That's Mary and Gary, and if you're interested, Wednesdays, please go chat it up with them. So thank you guys for leading. Glad you guys are here. And then, um, finally, I do have uh, kind of a staffing announcement to let you know. Um, and this one is about Marcus. So um, probably about a month and a half ago, uh, there have been some conversations started where Marcus has kind of felt some tensions between being both at the Tigard location as well as the Sherwood location. Um, he, has, he is full-time on staff at Colossae. He's uh, been 30 hours a week as Chuck's assistant at Colossae in Tigard and 10 hours a week here as our worship leader. And as kind of some opportunities came up, uh, there was a youth pastor position that came up at Tigard and Marcus got offered the job. And so uh, we are excited for him. So he's going to be actually transitioning to Colossae Tigard uh, as the youth pastor there. Um, And it's an exciting thing and a sad thing at the same time. Uh, We love Marcus. We're super glad he's been our worship leader uh, ever since really we started back in April. Uh, but I want us to kind of rejoice together with him uh, because he's kind of felt that tension of wanting to be in one place. And the Lord has really opened up an opportunity for him to be at Colossae Tigard as the new youth pastor. So we're going to pray for him next week. Um, so when you see him, congratulate him um, because he's, he's definitely due a position like that. His long-term goal is he wants to be in some sort of pastoral ministry long-term. So we knew that him leading worship was kind of a part-time thing anyway. Um, but didn't know it was going to happen so quick. But we're excited for him. And, and really, as we, as we talk through stuff, um, whenever transitions like this happen, I want us to be a church that really celebrates it. Um, because at the end of the day, God is the one who is sovereign, and he's the one who brings people to specific locations for specific reasons. And we were lucky enough to have Marcus be our worship leader for pretty much since day one here. Um, but I, when you see him, congratulate him. Um, uh, tell him you love him. Tell him you're excited for him because this really is a big, big deal uh, for him. And so uh, as we start, we're starting in the Gospel of Luke. As usual, we're going to continue with that. We are in the second section of the Gospel of Luke. First section, again, the coming Messiah. Second section, Messianic ministry. Third section, journey to Jerusalem. And the fourth section, Jerusalem itself. We've covered the first section. We see a lot from the angel Gabriel in this section where he speaks to Zechariah and Mary and Elizabeth about the expectations for who this Messiah is and what his kingdom is going to look like. At the end of that section, we have a kind of a genealogy that really anchors a bunch of no-name people to Jesus, that Jesus came through a bunch of no-names and God continues to use no-names today to bring about his glory. Um, so he anchors Jesus, the Old Testament there. We are continuing in the Messianic ministry section where Jesus is showing the kingdom of God That's his whole purpose. He's showing what the kingdom of God is like. And really, it's talking about the freedom that comes for those who are poor. Poor is in quotes for specific reasons because it's not just about economic poverty. It's about social poverty. It's about people not living 
into the fullness of humanity that they could because of an evil social system that existed where women and children weren't considered to be people but property. And so Jesus comes in to try to help the outcast and those who are thrown away to the wayside to be brought back into the fold of the kingdom of God. And this is where we're picking up today. And as we start, it's interesting that we announce kind of a leadership transition here um, because today is all about ministry and leadership. Um, for those of you who are in the business world, uh, you know that leadership is crucial to the health of any organization. If you have the right leaders, regardless of what institution it may be, it could be a parent-teacher association, could be a Fortune 500 company, it could be a nonprofit, it could be a church, as long as you have the right leaders in place, um, they will really take ownership and they will really move the organization forward. Um, and that's the same thing that's true in the church. If you have the right leaders, by God's grace, God will grow the church. You will see people meet Jesus. We'll see the health of our church flourish, and really our church in any church. And so as we approach the gospel this week, we're going to see two stories of Jesus doing ministry. And I'm going to call it the bookends. There are two ministry bookends, and right smack in the middle is Jesus calling the twelve. And what's unique about this story is not only who he chooses, but why he chooses them. Because why he chooses them is going to give us hope today for the same way in which God has chosen us to be his people. So Luke chapter 6 is where we are going to be, and we're going to start off in verse 6, and it says this. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at them, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do. To Jesus. So last week we took a look at the first kind of Sabbath account where Jesus said that he is the Son of Man who is the Lord over the Sabbath. And in this section you have uh, the Pharisees that are continuing to harp on Jesus' practices on the Sabbath. Last week they questioned the disciples because they were um, rubbing grains of wheat into their hands. Apparently there were no gluten free disciples back then. And they would rub those, uh, the grains of wheat together and they uh, would eat. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees would say, guys, you're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus, if your people break the Sabbath, their practices do not line up with the teachings of the revealed word of God. Therefore, your authority is wrong. Your authority does not exist. So what does Jesus do last week? He reorients the Sabbath practice around an act of dependence. The issue is not what you do and what you don't do on the Sabbath. The issue is, are you dependent upon who God is to be central for your life? And that brings us to this story, where Jesus, as usual, what does he do? He shows up to the synagogues, and he shows up to teach. What does he teach from? Most likely, scholars are still thinking he's teaching through Luke chapter 4, again, where he's proclaiming that there's release for the captive. That those who are in social captivity need to be brought back into the fold. Those who are considered outcasts, those who are demon-possessed, those who are, um, who are, whether they have physical ailments or just have some sort of social faux pas like Levi, the tax collector, those people would be brought back into the fold. So what is he doing? He's teaching that same message again. 
And so as Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, you see a bunch of men sitting around the side of the synagogue where uh, the synagogue would have a central section where many would sit and some on the side walls where others would sit. And Jesus is scanning the room. He's scanning the room and he sees this man who has a withered hand. And all, what he also does is he also scans the room and notices that the Pharisees are now following him again. So when the Pharisees showed up on the scene when he was talking about fasting, they were questioning him, saying, hey, Jesus, why do, you, why do your disciples party when everybody else fasts? What's the deal? They question those things. And as they question those things, the Pharisees continue to grow in speculation of Jesus. They keep following him, and now they're actually a part of the crowd that continues to follow him. So Jesus, looking around, sees the Pharisees, purposely knows what they're thinking because of their past actions. He sees that they're after him. So what does he do? He, he stokes the fire a bit. And this is what I love about Jesus. There's moments where Jesus leads with such authority and such power, but with such grace, too, where he tells the truth and the meaning. So what does he do? He pokes the fire a bit, and he says, hey, you there with the withered hand, would you stand up? And then he looks upon the crowd, and he says this. Is it, is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? Pharisees, you, you, you say that you shouldn't do anything on the Sabbath. In fact, you say that you're, you're not allowed to do anything. You can't work. You can't do anything. You're supposed to do nothing. Why? Because it honors God. But the rhetorical answer of the question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath, is an obvious yes. God's intent on the Sabbath wasn't just to not help those who are in need because God said rest on that day. So how do the Pharisees respond to that question? They say nothing. It's almost as if they've been caught. It's almost as if they have had their minds read. I can imagine them looking around at each other saying, the answer to that question is an obvious no, but what do we say to Jesus in this moment? Yes, we're supposed to be doing good on the Sabbath. And I can imagine them looking around, you got anything? No. You got anything? No. You got anything? No. Okay. We got nothing, Jesus. What do you have to say? So Jesus asked the man to stretch out his arm, and the hand is no longer withered. Now, again, as we've seen all throughout the gospel, when someone has a physical ailment, they become an outcast in society. So the fact that this man is even in the synagogue means that he's breaking cultural law. He's showing up. Why? Because this, this rumor of Jesus who comes and heals the broken is there. So he does anything and everything to be in the midst of that. And what happens? It actually turns out well for him. He becomes humanized again. He's no longer just a man with a withered hand. If, if you've ever hurt yourself when you're on the job, don't you long to get back to that job? <laughs> like, is there ever a moment where you've, you've, you've been doing construction and you, you smash your finger with a hammer and all of a sudden you're like, ah, oh, you're out for a week and you just can't wait to get back for it? Imagine you have a withered hand and you can't work for months and years. And as a man, that's your livelihood. Jesus is saving him back into his vocation again. He has opportunity again. But the opportunity actually turns sour for Jesus. Because now the Pharisees are not only just following him around, but they're actually seeking to do harm to him. And my thought was this. As I was studying the text, why, why would they be so infuriated? Why would they just not continue to question Jesus and, and maybe be satisfied with a skirt answer? Why are they now so offended? This is the second time that, that Jesus has corrected their understanding of the Sabbath. First, he says, you actually don't have authority because I'm Lord over it. If there's anybody who sets authority, it's me and not you. And second, he now says that you can actually do good on the Sabbath, especially to those who are in need of God's mercy. 
So here's my thought process. I think the Pharisees are ticked off because now this is an indictment upon who they are as leaders. Their understanding of the practices of God's people are wrong. And as you know, in any organization, as goes the leader, as goes the organization. If the leaders are saying one thing, then the organization is going to follow suit. So if you have the religious leaders of the day saying that, no, you can't touch a withered man, you can't heal someone, you can't treat someone like a human because they have something physically wrong with them, now all of a sudden Jesus has taken the tables and he's turning them again. And he's saying, your understanding is wrong, and Pharisees, your leadership is off. He calls into question how wrong their practices are, how poor their leadership is. And see, it's unique because Israel has always been called to be the people of mercy. They've always been called to be those who extend love to the stranger, to the sojourner, to those who are in their midst. They're not supposed to treat anybody like they are this haughty nation that God has chosen. No, God has chosen them from among the nations. They they didn't choose Israel to take them out and say, you're my special people and I'm not going to interact with anybody else. He purposely chose Israel so that he can interact with everybody else. But what does Israel do? It becomes self-centered. They become self-elusive. They think about themselves. And unfortunately, the leaders do too. So all throughout the history of Israel, you have kings who are known for their wicked practices, who lead God's peoples astray. You have prophets now who have to show up on the scene and preach against the kings and the priests and the religious leaders of the day, saying, guys, you're wrong. The prophets of the mouthpiece of God, they're coming to say, guys, your leadership is off. Micah 6.8 is a great example. God's people were supposed to be doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. So what does Jesus do? Jesus takes the role of the prophet and calls out the Pharisees' leadership and says, guys, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You cannot just sit there and not take care of someone who is in need. Why? Because it honors God to not work. Jesus gets right in their grill. And he, he, he really says that the Pharisees are the, the antithesis of everything that God is about. As goes the leader, goes the organization. So the plot thickens against Jesus. The, the scribes and the Pharisees are now moving from a place of following Jesus, observing Jesus, trying to understand Jesus, to a place of plotting, scheming, and now to a place of trying to get to a place where they could even murder him. But yet this doesn't stop Jesus, obviously doesn't stop him in his ministry. But there is something unique that Jesus now has to do. There is this sense that now opposition is coming towards Jesus. So what does he have to do? He has to raise up leaders. He has to raise up leaders for those who are going to follow in his footsteps after his death. And so what follows, that was the first kind of ministry book. And now you have the appointing of the 12. And here's how it goes down. Verse 12, it says this. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose them from among the twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor." 
So this is the pattern that we see for Jesus, right? This is not the first time that he's retreated to be with his father. In fact, as he poured out his life for ministry, he needed to be filled up again. So where did he go to? The place where he could be filled, his father's arms. He went to spend time with the father, um, but this time he spent time with the father all night. Now, why did he need to do that? He, he needed wisdom and insight that comes from God because now he's about to pick the dudes who are going to carry the church forward. Can you remember a time in your life where you just spent time begging God for work? It could be, uh, you know, you need a job opportunity. It could be your children are going wayward and you don't know what to do. But has there been a moment in your life where you are begging for God to work on your behalf? This is that moment for Jesus. Those feelings you felt, put yourself in Jesus' shoes. That's the feeling he feels. God, I have to make some calls here. I have to appoint some leaders here because your gospel has to move forward. So after an all-night prayer vigil, he comes down the mountain. He gathers all the troops together, all the disciples together. And amongst that crowd of disciples, he picks 12 men. And he gives them this title of apostle. Apostle is the idea of a sent one. Someone who's been sent on a mission for a purpose. And those apostles are going to be the ones who are going to carry the message and end up building the church. So he purposely calls them out in a more intimate way. He says, guys, now I'm going to start training you to lead in my church. So let's take a look at whom he chooses. You have Simon, right? We saw Simon back in Luke chapter 5. He was called to follow Jesus after the fisherman's catch of his life. He left the money, the money there and just went to follow God because he knew that he had an opportunity to follow a rabbi. You have Andrew, who's Simon's Peter, who is Simon Peter's brother. You have James and John, you know, fellow fishermen of Andrew and Peter. Uh, you have Philip, you have Bartholomew, you have Matthew, formerly Levi, the tax collector. Peter and uh, Matthew now have a name change. It's a unique thing. When God calls people to himself, there's so much of a dramatic identity change that sometimes they even change the name. This happens all throughout church history too. You'll see people come and meet Jesus and then their name changes. And they're no longer who they were because of now who they are in Christ. He calls Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Judas, the son of James. Then you have Simon, the zealot. Now, a zealot is one of the four sects of uh, Judaism. And in that sect itself, those guys were the militant ones. Those were the guys who wanted to take Rome by force. So now he is a zealot, and the zealot is a part of the 12. And then finally, famously, we know Judas Iscariot, the one who would eventually betray Jesus. Now, when you look at this group collectively, you have to think this to yourself. Jesus, you spent all night in prayer, and you pick these dudes? These are the guys that you choose? You have four blue-collar fishermen, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. You have some no-names, Philip and Bart, who, who aren't, aren't even spoken of anywhere else in the Gospels. You have a father-son combo like the Amazing Race, James and Judas, like you have those guys. You have one dude who's going to be known to be the emotive guy in the group. He's going to get picked on. That's the Apostle John who said that he talked all about love in his Gospel. You have one tax collector who's guilty of treason, Matthew. You have one dude who's eventually going to doubt that you've even resurrected, that's Thomas. You have one dude who's a violent insurrectionist, Simon. And then one dude who's going to betray you. Nice work, Jesus. You picked those guys? You see, this goes completely against whom society 
at any point in time would choose, whether it's first century or now. You pick the guys who are trained. You pick the guys who have skills. You pick the guys who have a good track record, most qualified, preferably without a criminal record. Those are the people that you pick. So imagine the shock and awe if I came to the table with those 12 guys and said this, these are your leaders for Colossae kids. These guys are going to be with your children week in and week out, teaching them about who God is. Many of us would feel the same shock and awe. And here's what's interesting. For those with whom we wouldn't entrust our children's safety to, Jesus entrusts the future of the church to. Jesus takes these 12 guys, and after an all-night prayer vigil, says these are going to be the leaders in the church. Okay? So when you get put in some sort of leadership position, would it be nice to have some sort of job description? Would it be nice to have, uh, you know, what the expectations are for you, what time you're supposed to be there, what time you're allowed to clock out and go home, et cetera, et cetera? Jesus gives them none of that. In fact, Jesus just pushes them back into ministry right away. So here's what happens. Verse 17, he continues, And he came down with them and on, stood on a level place, and with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So as soon as Jesus calls these guys to be leaders, there's no transitional step. There's no time to shift responsibilities. It's right into the pocket for them. And I think there's a purposeful reason why Jesus does that. He says, guys, I'm going to bring you along in ministry and train you as you go. This is the best training as you go on the job type program when you are picked to be a leader in the church with Jesus. So they're now the apostles. They're the sent ones. But now they're still the learning ones. They're going to be sent, but they haven't been sent out yet. They're now the learning ones. So what are they going to do? They're going to be side by side with Jesus the rest of this time, knowing internally who they've been called to be, but yet not released to be that yet. So you have the Black Friday crowd again at Urban Outfitters showing up, being with Jesus. They just want to get close to him, touch him because he has power. And there's just massive amounts of people that are present. More people that are set free from bondage. More people that are set free from demonic oppression. So much so that they literally are pushing towards him. They just want to touch his cloak. They just want to get with Jesus. Why? Because if they do, there's power that comes from him that can save who they are. And this is not an uncommon ministry section. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see this. But what is unique today is that you have a ministry section where Jesus heals on the Sabbath, calls out the Pharisees' poor leadership, calls those who we don't even think they should be leaders to be leaders, and then he sends them back out in ministry amongst the vast amount of crowds. Why? Because Jesus knows there's a lot of ministry to be done. And there's a lot of people to, to meet. There's a lot of people to love. So throughout this whole section, the section ends here today, but what's unique about this context is that the shift of the author changes. Luke has spent the majority of his time now focusing on Jesus and his ministry, but now as you read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see Jesus, the 12, sometimes um, Simon Peter, uh, James and John, the three amongst the 12 that are going to be with Jesus. 
And then you're going to see more and more of the apostles' role in the midst of the story. Luke highlights those who are going to become the apostles for the church, the first disciple makers, the first church planters, the ones who are going to take the reins when Jesus dies, is buried, and resurrects in now the second volume of Luke, Acts, and just set wildfire to the world. And here's how this intersects with you and me. Just as Jesus calls the 12 to become the 12 apostles, those who started the new works of God to become the first leaders in the church, likewise, he has called us, gifted us, and equipped us to join him in ministry of proclaiming and demonstrating the goodness of God, the release of those who are in sin's grip. We're now in the church age where where you and I can now build upon what Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul said he laid the foundation that was Jesus Christ, and everybody else is now building upon it. Here's the beauty. You and I now get the opportunity to build upon it. So here's, here's a couple of thoughts as we close. The first is this. God chooses the least to be the leaders in the greatest mission of all time. At first glance, this is what we see with the choosing of the 12. Jesus chose a bunch of winners that we wouldn't entrust our children to, but he entrusted the future of the church to. Here's one question I have to ask when I see this. Why? Why, Jesus? Why do you pick those guys? What's the point? And I think the reality is is this, is that God doesn't share his glory with anyone. Our God is a God who is completely aware that he alone is the hope of the world. So what does he choose? He chooses people who will make himself look glorious. That's what God is after. God is after his fame, his glory. So we would look back on all of history and not say, gosh, look at what Peter did. Look at what Paul did. Look at what all these guys did. No, look at what Jesus has done through his servants. See, this is where you and I have to have a right understanding of what a leader is. Leadership today is defined by the guy who has all the right answers, who makes the right calls, who uh, is growing in who you are and, you know, getting somebody else to be who you're not. That's all modern leadership principles of today. But biblical leadership is this, someone who uses the gifting that God has given them and seeks to use that gifting to influence others towards worshiping Jesus. I say it this way, broken leaders make the best leaders. Broken leaders make the best leaders because it's God working through them. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians, or uh, yeah, I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4. Your pastor doesn't know the Bible, so it doesn't matter. Um, It's one of those. Uh, But he talks about the reality of people being jars of clay, that we're these broken vessels that there's there's cracks in and there's, there's brokenness in. But what does God do? He holds the glory of who he is in these broken vessels. Broken leaders make the best leaders, and then servant leaders make the best leaders. Why? Because they model the lifestyle of Jesus. There's a guy, his name's Simon Sinek. He's a, he's a leader in the leadership world. Now, he's an author. Uh, he's a speaker. Um, he has consulted for many a Fortune 500 company. He wrote a book called Leaders Eat Last. And what I find humorous is that he's making millions off Jesus. Jesus says that the last shall be first. The whole point of that book is he saw a military uh, environment where the officers said, yeah, the officers eat last. And he goes, wait a minute, that's leadership. Someone who puts somebody else before themselves. Okay, so if you want to be a great leader in your environment, eat last or put yourself last. That's what Jesus said centuries ago. 
He said to be a leader is to be a servant. And here's where this intersects for you and me today. It's this. The second is this. God has chosen us to join him in kingdom ministry. Yes, the apostles laid the foundation for the church, but here's the beauty. God has entrusted you and me with the opportunity to make him known. So who does he choose? People like us. Broken, needy, helpless people. Why? Because when the Spirit of God fills us for ministry's sake, you know who gets the glory? Jesus. At the end of the day, this should never be about, oh, this is Steve's church. Never say that. It's not my church. Jesus died for the bride. Jesus died for his church all over the world, and he is the head of it. I get the privilege of teaching the Bible. That's it. I get the privilege of leading this thing. That's it. But you know what's great? You are called in this with me. This is not to be a pastor-centric church. God has gifted you to lead. And here's the thing. Most of us never get to a place where we can say, yes, God, you've made me a leader. And I don't know why. It could be with you, you don't want to seemingly be proud or arrogant. May I suggest sometimes it's actually proud or arrogant of you to not jump into a leadership role that God has prepared you to be. That's false pride. So I think for many of us, we've got to say, yes, we're learners and disciples of Jesus, but where has God called you to lead? The question is not, has he called me? The question is, he has called me, but how and where am I leading? We falsely believe that just because you don't have the title doesn't mean you don't have influence. Moms, you have influence over your kids. Dads, you have influence over your kids. Employees, you have influence in your work environment, and you may not even be the boss. But you have opportunities. And here's why this matters. God has given you ministry to do. God has not just brought me on board to lead Colossae Sherwood. He's brought us together to do ministry in the city so that people can be set free from their sin and know the goodness and love of Jesus. He's invited you and me into this. Ephesians 4 says that God has appointed apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and shepherds for the training of the saints for the work of ministry. You are a full-time minister of the gospel of Jesus in whatever environment you are in. And the beauty is that just as God has chosen the 12 to become apostles to lay a foundation, God in Ephesians 1 says that he chose us before the foundations of the world to be his. But not just to be his, but to join him in what he's doing. And that's the beauty that you and I get to walk into. So where do you have influence? Is it your family? Is it your workplace, your city, with your clients, your neighborhoods, your schools? Where has God given you an opportunity, a platform, so to speak, so that you can speak of the goodness of Jesus and demonstrate who he is? This is the place that God is leading you to, to be a leader in God's church. Yeah, you may never have a title of a pastor or a paid staff or who cares, but you have opportunity to lead. And I want to beg you this morning to take that opportunity. Why? Because God has given it to you, for you, to use for his glory. You see, God didn't make a mistake when he chose us. I can look back at those 12 that he chose and said, Jesus, you chose a bunch of winners. But I know my life and you know your life. You think Jesus chose a bunch of winners in this room? It's exactly what he did. He chose people whom his spirit can fill for the purpose of ministry. 
So what's God putting on your heart? Who are those names that are popping up in your head that you need to talk about the goodness of Jesus to? Do you sense courage coming in your soul right now from the Holy Spirit saying, yes, I've called you to lead? God chooses the least of these to be a part of the greatest mission on the planet. Friends, let's give our lives for this. Let's give everything that we are for the sake of others to know who Jesus is and build his church together. We're going to have communion. We're going to have a time of giving. If this is your church and you want to give in the boxes, feel free. Um, If you are a Christian, come and take communion. Kale's going to lead us in worship again. Uh, But here's my heart behind communion today. Come to the table with an expectant heart that God has not only forgiven you, but he's filled you so that he can use you. I want us to have hope today that God calls a bunch of winners like us to be a part of this crazy thing called the mission of God. And we get that opportunity together. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks so much for today. Thanks that we get the opportunity to see what you're doing. Jesus, we are in need of you. We are in need of feeling like leaders. We need your spirit to come and give us courage, God, where we lack it today. And God, we, we need you to, to change our hearts, to not just look at the 12 and say, man, why did you choose those guys? But look at ourselves and say, God, you've chosen us. Thank you. God, thank you for choosing us. If it weren't for you, we wouldn't, we wouldn't even know what we were doing in our worlds. But we're thankful that you crashed into our reality to change us and turn us into leaders for your church, I pray.